Do you realize you're fighting for your life? Freedom can be a captor. Truth liberates. Normalcy should be held up to scrutiny. When everything is on the line, learn how to stop living a lie. Hello, everyone. It's good to see you. It's good to see everybody at all of our campuses, online, wherever you're joining us from. Welcome. Glad you're here. Let's, uh, let's say hello to everybody at the other campuses. Can we do that? Just say good morning. We haven't done that in a while. So, hey, everybody. Hey, before we jump in, we're starting a new series today. But before we jump in, uh, let me just begin by maybe a thank you uh, Many of you know um, from Ben's notes, if you sign up for those or if you follow me on social media, that um, my father passed away a couple of weeks ago and uh, certainly leaves a, a big hole, you know, some of you have been through that, someone that was just so important uh, to me, um, continued to be just such a close friend and um, strength and support to me, and uh, will be dearly, dearly missed. Uh, what a great example he was, admirable life, and so seeing that end, of course, is, uh, is difficult. Um, man of great faith, and um, so, of course, we have all of the celebration to come. Um, through the providence of God, this all kind of came down uh, during the time when we were doing At the Movies, which... We actually record ahead of time, so all those were pre-recorded, and it allowed me, uh, at the encouragement of you all and the church leaders, to just go be with my family back in Minnesota. So I was able to be with dad, mom, a couple of my siblings for an extended period, over a week and a half of time, just with dad. Not all of that was easy or... or, or um, you know, it was tough, some of it, but a lot of it was really, really beautiful. And to be able to be there was such an honor to care for him, to be with him, to go through all that together was one of the most profound experiences of my life, really. I'm still processing all of that, honestly, and just consider it a great, a great honor. We certainly just called on the truths that my dad lived and uh, taught, you know, for, for all of his 93 years, and just to see someone with such solid faith right up until his final moments was a beautiful and powerful, powerful thing to be able to read, you know, scriptures at his bedside that I've read for hundreds of you at Mountain and, and to know their truth and um, what it would mean for his eternity was just, uh, it's a real blessing. Blessed Assurance was one of the last songs he ever, you know, ever heard. Um, sang it to him myself you know, at his bedside. So beautiful moments. Um, I just want to say thank you to you all for um, uh, your kindness, uh, for the church, for the elders and the staff, just kind of um, saying, hey, we got it. Be there as long as you need to. Um, I'm not sure it's all good news, but the church took off and flourished while I was gone. So <laughs> I guess that's, 
I guess that's good news. Certainly, um, you know, going through something like this just brings it so crystal clear. Like when you're on your deathbed and there's a thin veil between you and eternity, it really matters what we're talking about here, you guys. This whole Jesus thing really, really matters. And it has brought me back with um, a little fresh urgency to our mission. I think I bracketed some of those feelings that you're supposed to feel off and they, they, they're catching up to me a little bit now, uh, so if I'm a little foggy, um, you'll understand for a while. Um, some of you asked about mom. She's doing okay. I mean, how would you be doing? They would have been celebrating 72 years together uh, as a married couple here in a, in a little bit. Um, she, she's 95. She lives at home alone, and uh, she's well-supported and, and for friends, and, and we have family there, and... Um, she said the other day, she said, you know, I, I, I'm, I know I'm never really alone. And she didn't just mean all her friends and family and church checking on her. She, she meant she knows she's, she's got the Lord. So you can continue to pray for us. We have a, a service I'm kind of, it's big on my mind, uh, getting ready for uh, on June 3rd. So we'll go back and celebrate his life, celebrate the hope and the power and the beauty of the resurrection of Christ and what it means for all of us. So you can think of that and... Um, Appreciate, uh, appreciate all, I guess that's all I got to say about that. Um, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Um, let's dive in. Let's pray. Let's pray. God, uh, I, I just want, I want to say thank you for all these people who have, in their kindness, pastored this pastor, and um, thank you for the beauty of the resurrection that, um, I don't know, just... Dad is more alive than he's ever been right now, and I love that, and I look forward to that reunion. Um, I thank you for all those uh, people who have gone before us, who are cheering us on right now in our own race of faith, looking down and saying, you can do it. Don't you quit. Stand firm. Run fast. And um, I thank you for those voices. And, and Lord, I pray for the person who's in that grieving window right now themselves over something tender or tough that they've gone through. And there's always something. Um, everybody we meet is always carrying something. So, Lord, help us to be wise and tender and sensitive, caring people who really carry about us the, the kindness of Christ in our hearts and uh, care for one another. And now help us as we open our minds and hearts to your word and to these radical, powerful truths that can reshape us as we dive into this new series. We pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said... Amen. All right. So, you're being lied to. And a whole lot of people, maybe you, I don't know, are believing some of the lies. And the problem isn't just that you might believe a lie or two and have something in your head that's not right. It's that, it's that when you really believe a lie, you live a lie. And when you live a lie about who God is, who you are, what's truly important in life, how life actually works, what's the key to happiness, where do you find real joy and real peace. When you believe a lie about all that stuff, you live a lie about all that. So it means it wreaks havoc on you and your family and society around us. And you're being lied to like every day. It's an onslaught. It's a massive narrative jammed down our throats from all kinds of sources. And so many people normalize it that it almost seems like it must be true, which is why a lot of people fall for it. It's like a, it's like a war between truth 
and lies. And it really matters because it constructs, after a while, a kind of worldview. We all live with a worldview, like a mental map of reality, like what's actually true, how do things work, what is the way things are. And when you live with those mental maps that are built on lies, well, it's, it's not good. Martin Luther King Jr. said it this way. He said, you know, in every one of us, there's a war going on, and it's a civil war. It's inside of you. You ever felt that? You ever felt a little tug of war inside of you? Like there's something that you hear like maybe in Scripture in a moment of clarity or you're, we're here together and it's like, oh, I get it. I get what marriage is supposed to look like or I get what, what, how I'm supposed to manage my feelings or I, I get what's true about life or goodness or whatever and it's clear. And then, and then like we're just discipled by so much of the news and, and our friends and the world around us and Instagram and before long it's like all all of that truth is fuzzy and lost. And I, we, do you ever feel that tug of war? It's deceptive and it's broad and it's a war between lies and truth. Now, to be clear, I'm not talking about something that's kind of the buzz today to talk about, you know, fake news and all that. And I get that. That's a thing. And people are concerned about it. And what they mostly mean is I wish you'd listen more to the news channel I listen to. I'm talking about someone's about four levels up from that. That's much more important. And it is a struggle. It's a, it's a battle going on, and you don't even get a choice in whether you're going to fight the battle or not. The, the choice is not whether to fight or not to fight. The, fight, the choice is whether you win or surrender. <laughs> so I'm, I'm talking to people who are aware and want to be more aware of how do we sort out truth from lies and how do we win? How do we win the war on lies. There's a title to this thing that we're calling it, How to Stop Living a Lie. There was actually a book by an author named John Mark Comer that we read, some of us on the team, a, few, a while back, and we're like, oh man, he's got some great stuff, man. That's, he says what we want to say, so we're going to steal some stuff from him, but I'll be honest with you, we're leaning way more into the one who described himself as the way. Because there's a different way of living than a lot of people are living. The one who said, I am the truth. Because there's a, there's a whole body of, of way of looking at reality that's just different than the way and the truth that a lot of people are talking about. And the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Because there's a different life actually waiting for us in Christ if we'll kind of let our minds become dictated, uh, filled, uh, consumed, and then live out the way, the truth, and the life. So the struggle is real is what I'm trying to say, right? The struggle is real. We all use that phrase sometimes. kind of means, oh, you know, I got stuck in traffic or, uh, uh, you know, I dropped my phone in the toilet. You know, some first world problem, right? But, but um, behind that little cliche, there's some truth, isn't there? Like, you know what? Life isn't always easy. In fact, it's often very difficult no matter how successful you are, how much money you have, how, how great everything appears to be in your life, sometimes there's a lot of struggle in life, and it, and it just feels hard. Jesus said as much. John 16, he said, in this world you will have what? Trouble. You're going to have some trouble, y'all. You just might as well know it. And it's amazing how when we understand that truth, how it affects so many other things. He said, in this world, now he wasn't talking about the world that he created at the beginning of time, because that was rosy and great and everything was awesome. 
And he's not talking about the world that he's bringing one day, which Revelation 21 describes as a place where there will be no more pain, crying, tears, sorrow, separation, death, none of that. It's not, no, in this world, y'all are going to have some trouble. You're going to have trouble. What's trouble? Someone's going to betray you. You're going to have disappointment. You're going to have discouragement. You're going to have disease. You're going to have death. You're going to have a divorce. You're going to have all kinds of trouble. And you will have trouble, he says. Not like, you know what, I got bad news. It's like a lotto. There's a few of you unlucky saps that are going to have a rough go. The rest of you, it's going to be good. No, no, no. He says, you all will have trouble in this world. And yet, Jesus goes on to say, and the other New Testament writers go on to say, hey, but you can choose joy in the middle of it. You, you, can, you can actually have a life filled with joyful. You can have joy in all circumstances. You can have peace. The same place where he said, you're going to have trouble in the world, was the same conversation where he says, oh, and by the way, I'm going to give you my peace, and you can have it in every circumstance. Wait a second, I just lost my dad. Or you say, I'm just losing my job, or, or my kids are going AWOL, I, I, they're going crazy, and, and you're, you're, what are you saying? I can have joy, I can have peace in that? And it's like, oh, yeah, exactly, because it has to do with what you believe. And what you believe, you start living that. So that's why it matters a lot. Let me try to break this down a little bit for you. Wise teachers for a long, long time, many centuries, have kind of made a division between pain and suffering, if you will. So like pain, simply stated, is what is. Pain just comes at you. It just happens. That's the, that's the death of a loved one. It's a diagnosis. It's a... It's, it's someone doing you dirty or a failure that happens. It hurts. It's pain, okay? It's just what is. It's the reality. But suffering is kind of how you feel about it. It's how you react to it. It's, it's the meaning you make or don't make because of your beliefs about the pain. You can't change the pain. It's going to come. But what we really look at life differently and we suffer more or less depending on what we believe. So this is a big, big deal. The problem isn't so much that we tell lies. The problem is that we live them. And then they sabotage our peace and they wreak havoc on so much of our life. You know, psychologists, when they talk about neuroticism, uh, they basically define it as when we suffer more than we need to. And by that definition, how many of you are with me saying, yep, sometimes I'm neurotic? Because we suffer more than we need to. What are we talking about here? Well, basically, if I expect life to be easy, I'm going to suffer a lot more than I need to. If I forget the words of Jesus, I'm going to suffer more than I need to. Years ago, I was handed a book I didn't know would become a very famous book that, that millions and millions of people would read by M. Scott Peck. It's called The Road Less Traveled. And the first three words are a real gripper. The first three words are, life is difficult. Makes you really want to turn the page, doesn't it? But it's true, isn't it? And what, it, what the author goes on to describe is, is how when we... When we think life is not going to be difficult and it should not be difficult and there's nothing hard about it, how difficult life seems. But on the other hand, when we expect life to have its challenges and hardships as part of what comes in this world, it's amazing that those people who, who do that are the ones who invariably 
have the most peace and joy in their life. Isn't that interesting in a counterintuitive sort of way? Nowhere is all this more true than in your spiritual life, in the struggle for your soul. You could call it a war. Now, I realize when we start talking about war and mixing it with faith that that can be a pretty sensitive thing. And we've really bungled this in the past. If you know your history, there's good reason for us to maybe be a little cautious about mixing military metaphors and faith. But Despite our modern concern about that, maybe for good reason, you know what? The Bible, the New Testament writers don't share your reticence. (laughs) They were very bold and very clear about saying, you know what? Following Jesus is going to be a struggle for your soul. It's going to be a war for your soul. Let me just show you. We could talk about this a long time. Let me just give you a few examples. Paul is talking to a young protege named Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6. What does he say? He says the same thing in 1 Timothy 6 that he says to you right now. Fight. It's a good fight of faith. You want a cakewalk? You ain't going to find that in this life. Fight the good fight of faith. He says over to the Ephesians in chapter 6, he says, let me give you one final word on all this that he's been given this whole, chapter, this whole book. And then he says this. He says, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. You're going to need power. And you're going to also need to put on God's armor, that's military language, so that you will be able to stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rules and authorities and of, of the unseen world, which are, though unseen, nonetheless real, against mighty powers in this dark world and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so that you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then after the battle, well, there's going to be a battle, but after it, you can still stand. He's preparing us to fight the good fight. Over in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, he says, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. No, no, it's not, you know, it's not giving out AK-47s at the door here. It's never, it's never physical like that. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. What's he talking about? He says, we demolish arguments. It's about truth and falsehood and every pretension. It's about lies that set themselves up against the knowledge, the truth of God. And therefore, we have to learn how to take captive every thought in our brains and make it obedient to Christ, to bring it under subjection to Christ. I could go on, but there's military language all the way through to help us see we're in a spiritual war. Now, let's just kind of see how this might work for us. Go back to about the third and fourth centuries. And uh, something really significant happened uh, in Christianity, in the whole world, actually. Um, Christianities, uh, Christians went from being basically lion food, greatly persecuted as a little outlying minority group, to uh, more and more people sort of bought into the Christian faith, and it moved all the way up until the emperor, by the name of Constantine, says, I'm a Christian. I'm going to legalize the way of Jesus which we thought was great as Christians on the, on the surface of it. Hey, great, we don't, we don't get, we're not lion food anymore. That's good. That seems like a plus. But there were unintended hidden consequences buried in that as now Christianity became the sort of official state religion of the realm. 
And what happened is, instead of Christianity being this sort of countercultural little subgroup that could speak really strong, radical truth about who Jesus was and the truth he called us to, now we, instead of bringing all that to society, we began to be swallowed up by it a little more and look more and more like the world around us. We went with the flow. We compromised with the government. We became complicit in a system that was very non-Christian in many ways. Does any of this sound familiar, by the way? And, 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 and what was happening on the other hand is the empire itself, many people were concerned, was, was losing its power and also just like kind of in disarray, it felt like the world was falling apart. Does any of this sound familiar? In the middle of all of that then, there was a group of Christians, some of whom thought, well, this is great, hunky-dory, and they just went along. But there was a whole bunch of them who said, wait a second, this doesn't feel right. It feels like there's some lies going on. We've got to find a way to really live out an authentic faith in Jesus. And there always is that group of Christians. And we're being called upon right now in our time to be that group. Now, um, they did different things and they looked different ways. One of the groups, one of the things that they did is they said, we're going to get away from this world system. And we're gonna, they actually went out into the desert, the desert of Egypt or the desert of Syria. And they, they, they just devoted their entire life to devotion to Jesus and prayer and living in special communities. And, and uh, you could call them monastics or whatever. But that was their answer to everything that was going on around them. One of them had a name by the name of Evagrius Ponticus. Isn't that beautiful? Anybody looking for a baby name? E.P., I would just go with E.P. if that was my name. Just call me E. Um, he left his life of privilege and wealth and all of that and abandoned it all in order to head out into the desert of Egypt and just pursue a life with God. Eventually, years and years later, he became this highly sought-after kind of spiritual healer and just a guy who's someone who's really close to God. He wrote a book, actually, that still is around today. You can read for yourself. It's called Talking Back, a monastic guide for combating demons. Isn't that an awesome title for a book? He believed that, you know what? Devil's going to talk to you. You talk back to him. Let me tell you how. That was basically what he wrote a book about. He believed that spirituality was, in fact, a struggle. He didn't go out in the desert to get away from everything. He went out there to fight. And he believed that the onslaught that we were facing came from three sources, the devil, the flesh, and the world, he called it. What did he mean? The devil was, 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 was he thought, like a battleground for the thoughts in your head, and your mind. And then the flesh is like, that's what the New Testament calls it, but it's like referring to our passions, our animal desires. And if we let them kind of rule us, they will become, in fact, these things that will inflame our desires in a way that will never be good for us or people around us. And then he said the last was the world itself, which is just kind of this whole sort of onslaught of, of momentum and like tidal current that sweeps everything and everyone in a certain direction, even though it's not even true. And these three enemies he called the enemies of the soul, the, the devil, the flesh, the world, kind of like a counter trinity, if you will hell-bent on the ruin and destruction of your soul. Now, I realize when we start talking about stuff like this, there's a certain part of us, maybe a lot of some of you, who will say things like, you know, this just sounds so antiquated. You know, we're so much more sophisticated than this now. We live in a scientific age. Uh, can we really keep talking about these things that sound like they're basically just superstitious? Because we know better. We've got life so much more by the, uh, uh, we, uh, um, 
we, we just can't be dragged back to, um, you know, this sort of antiquated way of thinking. Devils and flesh and world. You know, if you can't measure it with science, it's not even real. And to which Jesus might just say gently, how's that working out for you? Our skepticism about these things or lack of certain, you know, probably just increases our vulnerability to them. And I believe that the ancients had some wisdom that we lack. And the Bible has some truth that we need. And there's a crucial missing ingredient in a lot of our understanding, which is why we're not always doing so well in the war. So the followers of Jesus really are at war with the world, the flesh, and the devil. And the three enemies have a strategy, and here, here they are. The, the strategy looks like this. First is deceptive ideas. That's what, that's what, that's what when, you, when, you, when you hear that phrase, the devil, it's, there are deceptive ideas which then, which then play on our disordered desires, like we're told, you know, if you've got a desire, it's never disordered. It's always right. It's always good. If it's from inside of you, it's beautiful and wonderful. Go with it. That's what the Bible calls the flesh, which then become normalized in a society around us. And that basically is what the Bible would just call sinful. That's what the Bible means by the way of the world. When you have a lie, like a deceptive idea that becomes, kind of plays and feeds into a disordered desire that others normalize, it's very, very powerful. And before long, we don't just live a lie, know a lie or believe a lie, we live a lie. And so I, I'm not trying to stir up a culture war here and, you know, let's take America back for God. None of that. What we're talking about is simply this. What was it in the art of war? Was that um, Sun Chu who, who said, know your enemy? We got to know our enemy. And if you recognize our enemy and understand how he thinks and works a little bit, uh, then we won't get played quite so bad. So... Let's dive in. Let me, let me, let me, let me just kind of take you a couple places, and then I'll try to give you a, a super practical illustration of how it's made a difference in my life and maybe in yours. So um, Jesus, when he begins his ministry, he, uh, he gets baptized. You can read about it in the Bible. Matthew chapter 3, he gets baptized. Then right after that, what happens? Well, he immediately is out in the wilderness where he is kind of fasting and preparing himself. Forty days he goes without food. He's fasting. He's very hungry. And in that moment of solitary and also hunger... The tempter, the deceiver, the one the Bible calls the liar and the accuser, the, the devil himself comes to Jesus in that moment and tempts him and says, for example, hey, Jesus, I know you're pretty hungry. You could turn these stones into bread. And Jesus answered, you know, hey, um, man shall not live by bread alone. He quotes from Scripture to refute the, truth, the, the lie that was being told to him at that point about his desire. And, and then the devil took him to the, to the holy city, had him stand up on the highest place of the temple and says, hey, you know what? If you really are the son of God, now you probably are, but I mean, why don't you prove it? And then just imagine the spectacle and the crowd you could draw if you threw yourself down. And then the Bible even says angels would come and rescue you. And man, you'd be off to a great start. And Jesus um, 
looks at that and, and, and says that's not the way that we're going to go. And he quotes scripture back at the devil and says, no, 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 you're, you're abusing that. Don't put the Lord your God to the test. And the devil says, well, what about, what about this? And he, and he takes him up to a high mountain and says, looks down at everything and says, I'll give all that to you if you just bow down to me. And, and Jesus refutes him again and says, I worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then the devil left him. So you see how the, the Satan comes and he's like speaking these things into him in his moment of weakness, speaking into his head, trying to get into his into his what's really true about him and and uh what do i really want who am i who is god these are the big questions now what i'm trying to get at is this evagrius ponticus and others like them from that those early centuries read this part of the bible and they saw in here like here is someone going, here's Jesus in silence and in solitude. But for him, like today we sometimes talk about that like it's a spiritual day spa. Like we're going to go just kind of hang out and chill and relax with God a little bit. They didn't see it that way. They saw it not as a retreat from the big bad world, but they saw this episode as Jesus being in battle. The devil trying to speak a lie into and over Jesus whispering in his ear about who he is, what he's about, trying to derail him before he ever gets out of the starting gate. And Jesus, so anchored and so grounded with something inside of him that he like, refuses to listen, and he just goes along another way by bringing his mind back to a corresponding truth from Scripture that was anchored so deeply in him that it didn't faze him at all. He, he's able to curate his mind around the truth because it's deep inside of him. That's a little hint at how you and I are going to win this war. We're not going to win it by, you know, getting just sort of a little teaspoon of God thought once a week and then 167 hours of crap the rest of the time. It's not going to happen. So let me show you a Greek word. You want to speak some Greek today? Here's, here it is. Logos my. Logos, my. You want to try it? You want to say logos, my? Logos, my. There it is. You recognize the word logos there or logo, uh, you know, just uh, uh, anyway, whatever. Uh, logos, my. So it just basically it means, um, yeah, there you go, negative thoughts. Yeah, like when you perseverate on a thought or it gets in there and it's kind of a negative um, perception, or we would say a toxic thought. You ever had that, like, that, like a narrative that plays like a video or a thought that just plays in your head, and you know it's maybe not quite true, but it won't let you go. It's so strong and so powerful. A toxic thought, or as psychologists today might call them, uh, n- negative ruminations that just sort of latch hold. And, you know, Evagrius and others from centuries ago said, yeah, these aren't just random thoughts out of nowhere. They're kind of animated by some presence that's putting them there. And again, some of us are like, time out, wait a second. What, 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 what are you saying here? You're talking about, what are you talking about, the devil talking to me? Or what, what, are, you, what are you saying here? And I just would say, just, just hold... Suspend judgment for just a second and ask yourself if you've ever had a thought. You knew it was toxic. You knew it was not really a good thought. But, man, it was, it, it's almost like it had a will to it. 
like a malignant will, like it just wanted to latch on. It wanted to be thought like you, you kind of didn't want it to be there, but it just would not let you go. And you began to just sort of fester on it like something happened, you messed up. And then the thought just grew that you are a failure and that no, everyone thought you were a failure. And you begin to look at every other part of your life that's a failure. And, before long, and, it, and it's this whole thing working on you, even though it's not a voice from God, it's not even truth. But it's powerful. It's happened to all of us. When you, when you, someone does you dirty and you like, you get a thought like, it would sure be sweet to, I, I know how I can get back at that sucker. And that thought just fast. Now that thought's not from God. It's not really a true thought, but it's powerful there. Or an insecurity arises between spouses, husband, wife. She sees him, you know, with that person and begins to think, oh, I bet he thinks she's way more attractive. And after all, I am a piece of trash. And I, I just, you know, and before long, just, we just run wild with toxic thoughts that we ruminate on, don't we, sometimes. And these things can actually, if they just enter our thought and leave, that's one thing. But when we when they get stuck there, we begin to live those lies about who we are, who God is. And it's, 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 it's like revenge and jealousy and, and shame and all this stuff lives and brews and grows out of this stuff. What we think really matters. These are not voices from God. It really, really matters. And if we entertain them, they, they, we begin to act out. And you, you can call it whatever you want, but you know what it is? It's demonic. Demonic activity doesn't look like, I'm going to date myself here, but they don't, it doesn't look like poltergeist or someone's head spinning and vomit coming out of their mouth. You know what it looks like? It looks like someone believing a lie. That's how it looks, according to Scripture. So let me just, let me just remind us. You know, the Bible says in Proverbs, as a person thinks in their mind, in their heart, that's, that's who you are. Your mind is the primary point of contact you have with reality and with God. So what's going to be the point of contact that if you had a spiritual enemy who might attack you in the most fierce way? <laughs> it's going to be your mind. That's why the Bible says in Philippians 4 that we've got to guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So let me just kind of just give this to you this way. Let me ask you a question. Whose voice, what voice are you listening to? Because it really, really matters about who God is, about who you are, about what's true, about how to live the good life. It really matters because you'll begin to live that voice. Let me take you back. Go back to the Garden of Eden, right? God spoke some stuff to the first two humans. Adam and Eve, we call them in the Bible. They were, they were there, and God had spoken some things about his love and protection and care for them. The tempter shows up on the scene in the form of a serpent. What does he, what does he do? First thing he does, he starts to whisper in Eve's ear, hey, is that really true what he said? I know he said that, but what about this? Or is that really, I mean, he said don't, but is, that, is it just, is he on ego trip? Or I bet if you, he begins to plant doubt in her mind about the goodness of God. The other voice from the tempter began to crowd out the voice of God, and she believed the lie, and the rest is history. We've been doing the same ever since. What voice are you listening to? Uh, 
uh, time, time with my dad was, um, not every moment was good, uh, in those final days anyway, because he had a couple, he had been diagnosed with a couple diseases. He had been diagnosed with Parkinson and Lewy body both. Between that and the medication and just being old and some of that, uh, not every moment was great. But then, as any of you have been with someone who's been in their hospice stages knows, there's these beautiful moments where they rally and they're lucid and clear and present and interested and fully themselves. And you just love and relish any gift you get like that. We had a lot of those actually. We said goodbye about 14 times. It's like, Dad, you're back. And in one of those little moments, um, we didn't have a lot left that needed to be said. Probably nothing that hadn't been said, but it gave us opportunity to say it again, some of those things. So we did. One of the things I was able to tell him is I just said thank you for being a really good dad. And specifically, dad, I want to thank you that there was never a moment that I ever doubted that you loved me. I know that you were not always happy with me. I know that I disappointed you often. But I never doubted that you loved me or that you were somehow proud of me deep down. You told me and you showed me that. And I said, I want to thank you because that gave me a kind of strength that I can't fully explain, but I know it made me stronger and able to do things I probably wouldn't have done on my own. It allowed me to say yes to Jesus and follow my calling, which ironically took me away from you, Dad. But thank you for that. He said, I understand. Because I think he had received something like that from his own dad. And I can't really begin to explain to you all that that has meant for me, but I have been around lots and lots of people over 35 years of ministry and I'll say many, dare I say even most of us don't have that. And even if we did have a parent that told us those things, there's just so many other voices, I'm not sure we believe it. And it creates a struggle for us, leaves a hole inside. And I know my situation is rare, all too rare to have a loving parent who tells you that stuff but I know my own struggle even having heard that voice I know how common it is and if that's you I uh, I want to give you uh, some hope and I want to I show you a scripture that I think will really minister to all of us here so remember we talked about Jesus out in the wilderness he was uh, getting tempted and all that you know what happened immediately prior to that when he begins his ministry First thing that happens is his baptism, end of chapter 3. So Matthew chapter 3, Jesus comes to this guy named John the Baptizer, crazy guy out in the wilderness, says, I need you to baptize me. John says, oh, heck no, you're going to baptize me. He's like, no, that's not how it works, just do it. And he does. And he baptizes Jesus, verse 16 of Matthew chapter 3 says this, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, and at that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove alighting on him, saying all of the Father, Son, Spirit are all present in this moment. Verse 17, and a voice from heaven, so we know who's talking. The Father says, this is my Son. Y'all check him out. I love him. 
I'm proud of him. Remember, up to that point, Jesus was nobody as far as anyone else was concerned. Just a nobody guy from nobody Nazareth, a, a, a carpenter trying to turn rabbi. The only one vetting him to that point was that crazy guy who ate bugs out in the wilderness, John the Baptizer. I mean, who cares about him? And now the voice that matters, the only voice that matters says, this is my son, I love him, I'm pleased with him. And so it was an authentication, it was a validation, it was an initiation of his ministry, and it made all the difference in the world for who Jesus was. I don't know if you've ever received that kind of voice over you from a parent or anyone else. I know a lot of people go through their whole life and never seem to get it, like, like Esau in the Bible, clamoring for a blessing they can't quite get their hands on. So I don't know if you've ever received it, but I know this. I know that God wants you to receive it, and I want, he wants you to receive it right now, that same blessing. And if you trust this Jesus Christ who came up out of that water and that voice spoke to him, over him, who went on then to love and to live and then die and be raised again and invite you into that same blessing through faith. If you say yes to that Jesus and follow the way, the truth, and the life, that same message that God spoke over Jesus that day in the water is the voice that God wants to speak over you and your life. You are meant to be his child, and to know it. And you are meant to be someone he loves and to know it. And what you think about God and how he thinks about you is how you live. And too many of us are living a lie. Some of you are baptized and you still believe all the shame-filled voices of the one speaking in your ear, the toxic, ruminating thoughts that simply aren't true. It's why we're weak. It's why we're not more confident. It's why we don't have more joy and peace in the middle of our struggle because we're listening to the wrong voice let me tell you let me tell you this stuff matters so much it, 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 when you hear that voice and you know who you are you are a beloved child of God it saves you from 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 having your whole life be like this desperate attempt to prove to everyone maybe yourself that you're really worthy of love or that you're somebody, that you're important, that you're successful. Because you don't need to prove that stuff. You're free now to just serve and love and give because you already know, because you've listened to the voice, the only voice that matters. And so let me just tell you, that's what happened with Jesus. That happened in his baptism. What happens next? Boom, he's out in the wilderness. Satan's coming at him. Bam, bam, bam. He's like... I got the voice. I don't need to hear yours. After that, his own family rejected him, as some of you understand. You understand what that's like. His own family rejected him, said, Jesus, we can't follow you. How do you get through that? He heard the voice. That's how. He knew who he was and who his real father was. And his own disciples deserted him. And Pilate and Sanhedrin and everybody condemned him. They put him on a cross, and he felt even abandoned from the Father. But in that moment, what, what did he know was true? He heard the voice. you got to be able to hear the voice. So if you have given your life to Christ, friends, you have had that voice speak over you. If you've been baptized, that voice spoke. Now, here's what happened. When I was 12 years old, my dad baptized me in a cold, mucky lake up in northern Minnesota. And I got out of that water. I didn't hear nothing. And you probably didn't either, but you know what? I'm hearing it right now, and you can too. The truth of anyone who comes to Christ 
is the voice of the Father speaking over you. You're my kid. You're mine. That's who you are. No matter what else happens, no matter what anyone says, no matter what you do, no matter how tainted and stained you make your life, you're still mine. I still love you. I'm still pleased with you. And you gave yourself back to me, trusting me as the way, truth, and life. And your life will be better. And if you have not given your life to Christ, you don't have the assurance. My earthly father will never bless me again on this side of glory, but my heavenly father can bless me every day. I want you to have that. And if you don't, if you've never said yes to Jesus, you've never said, I believe he's the son of God. He's my Lord and my savior. I got lots of unanswered questions, but I'm ready to go with him. You've never been baptized. You're making a big mistake. I'm just telling you. You need to take care of that as soon as you can. I would just do it as soon as I could if I were you. I would do it as soon as I could. Lord, uh, help us to weed out truth from lies. Help us to live in the power of the truth. Thank you for Jesus who just lived it out so purely. And uh, we, we ask that you will you'll help everyone here who is a believer in you to hear your voice over the lies of the evil one. And those who have yet to make that decision to do so today, to talk to one of our friends. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. What a good message.